Thank you, Tabby. <coughs> that's always been my favorite song. That's a, that's a song they played at my, my dad's funeral when he died back in the 70s. And it's always been special to me. Thank you for that today. Well, if you have your Bibles today, I want you to uh, invite you to turn back to Proverbs. Uh, we'll be in Proverbs chapter 4 today. And uh, last week, we uh, kind of ended up a, a four-week series on spiritual growth. We wanted to take, well, really, it started out, I was just going to be one sermon, but it wound up into a series, which is good. We took about the whole month of, of, uh, of January to, uh, to talk about uh, where our church is going and uh, I want you to have a better understanding of, of how you fit into it and what I'm trying to do and trying to accomplish. And I just think that's really, really important for everybody to, to understand that. You know, I, I, I'm, always, I'm always conscious of the fact that I want to help you, you know, understand where we're going, what we're trying to accomplish, because obviously it's, it's the church that is going to get the job done. And uh, you need to be well advised and, and just be in tune with where the Spirit of God is leading us. And it's always, it's always a good thing just to spend some time like that. So we had some really good uh, messages last four weeks on, on your spiritual growth. Last week we talked about Ezekiel chapter 47. I actually showed you the process as, you know, moving through the waters that come out of the throne of God type of the Holy Spirit of God. And, uh, but today we're going to get back uh, to work in the book of Proverbs is what we've been doing. We started Proverbs a while back. It's been a, uh, something we've wanted to do around here. But we just never uh, had other things we had to get done first, but we started it, and I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I think I probably have spent more time in my life in the book of Proverbs than any other book of the Bible, and honestly thought I had a fairly decent understanding of it, but I must tell you that coming through and preparing it and going through it to this degree that I've had to do it this time to bring you something every Sunday, it's really opened up my eyes to so many things that I, I had never seen before, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, I hope it's been a blessing for you. But, um, you know, as we come through the first three chapters of Proverbs, we now understand that it's about us as a son, God's son. I told you how that the first seven chapters, every one of those chapters start out with a, talking about my son. And it's a picture of, of God speaking to you and me in a practical way. And uh, it's, a, it's a great book that talks about, uh, for you and I, getting the two greatest attributes of God that there is. And that is God's wisdom and God's understanding. My goal as a pastor is to, to help you do that. I recognize and realize, being in this little longer than most of you, and seeing probably more dynamics than most of you from my position of just being in Christianity with churches and all of that, I think the number one thing that a Christian has to have if they're going to survive today is the ability to see things uh, as God sees them and understand them as God understands them. And over and over again, we saw uh, the Holy Spirit develop this theme uh, in the first three chapters just from different angles and different ways. And today we're going to move into chapter 4, and it's a chapter that really, I think, pulls a lot of things together for us as far as getting the wisdom of God and His understanding and all that goes along with it and, why, and really uh, helps you better understand why our church uh, is, is the way that it is. I never make any apologies for our church to anybody. I've said it many, 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 many times, and, uh, I, and I continue to say it, that I understand in the day and age of Christianity that we live our church is not for everybody. 
most churches take the position that that um, this is a church that everybody can be happy and everybody, uh, you know, needs to just... And that's not necessarily true here. I mean, it is a church that uh, you can truly be happy in, but it's going to be based on what you're going to do with the Word of God, not some dog and pony show that we put on up here that, uh, that just keeps you entertained as we come down through it. And I think it's always important that uh, when people come into our church, I, I think a lot of people uh, come to churches today looking for something that they don't find uh, in Christianity. You know, I, everybody in our church is on different levels. But I can say something about probably everybody in our church. You may be all on different levels. You may be on different levels of understanding the Bible. You may be even on different levels of understanding of involvement. I understand that. But I think the one thread that goes through everybody that would call themselves a member of this church is the simple fact that you love the Bible. And uh, the Word of God means something to you. And you love it. And, uh, you know, it's a, that's the greatest characteristic, I think, of, of our church is the fact that there are people here, almost without exception, probably without exception. That doesn't mean you always do what's right. It doesn't mean you always follow everything the way that you should. But deep down inside, there's a core value in you that you recognize the Bible for what it is and you love it for what it is. Our job is to help that get better in your life and the things that we do. But, uh, you know, it's a thing where I, I, I always want uh, uh, in our Christian life over the years, there will be sermons that you hear, hundreds of them. And, there, and then there will be sermons that you better hear. Uh, there are sermons that uh, are so exact in what they hold for you and putting a lot of things together. And I think it's this way when we get into chapter 4. Uh, this teaching today and probably next week and probably throughout the whole chapter uh, is, is one of those things that uh, you better uh, really grasp and try to understand. As far as I am concerned, and we've talked about balance in the church. As far as I am concerned, uh, what I'm going to talk about today and next week really forms the balance of what all churches should be. I think the balance of all Christianity. Uh, and it starts uh, when, when you begin to understand and, and, and begin to look at uh, and, and see why Christianity uh, today is no longer the force in the world that it once was. I, I think that you'd have to be pretty simple-minded to not understand that most people today in the world look at Christianity as a joke. Uh, there was a time when Christianity uh, had some power to it. 150 years ago, if you went into a, a bank and you wanted to get some money for a loan on, a, on your house or do something and this, that, and the bankers say, what kind of collateral do you have? You, the guy would say, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a member of a Methodist church in town. And that's all you really needed to say. Or you said, I'm a member of the Baptist church. You got the loan based on the fact that you had the character and the quality to be associated with something that back then people really knew stood for something. Don't try that today. <laughs> I don't think it'll work for you in any way, shape, or form. Now, but, uh, you know, I, let's read here chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to start to kind of look at this and, and go as far as we can today with it. He says, Hear ye children the instructions of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, 
Uh, let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Now, Father, help us today to, to glean from this what you have, and, and I think probably to help us see probably what is the number one fundamental thing that's wrong with Christianity today and wrong with a lot of Christians. I thank God, Lord, for the men and women, that you, moms and dads, that you brought into this church. I, I thank you, Father, for their love for you and for the Word of God and for the fact that they want to be and do everything that God wants them to be. Help us today in all that we endeavor to do for you to give you the honor and glory and bless us today with your presence. And Holy Spirit of God, lead and guide us into all truth. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now you want to remember our, our three aspects of the book of Proverbs. Historically, Solomon's writing to his son, uh, his literal son, Doctrinally, which we know it's a picture of the nation of Israel as God's son, and God is dealing with them and, and them getting the wisdom of God and not to be deceived. But inspirationally, in a practical sense, it's you and me. And you and me as God's child, God's son, getting the wisdom of God and the understanding of God that we make the right choices in life. And we have, if we've talked about anything, we understand now that life is about choices. And in verse 1, he says, Hear ye, children, the instructions of a father. Now, that's God to, to you and me. And attend. In other words, stay in attendance with this. To know understanding. Verse 2 goes on and says, Then he gives us the key to getting all that God has where God has placed it in his word. And he says there in verse uh, 2, For I give you good doctrine. Verse 4 says, goes on and says, then retain God's word in your heart. Now, when I'm done with this chapter, those of you uh, that uh, will listen and will pay attention to it uh, will understand how and why uh, better, why we do things here the way that we do. And I don't make any apology for it, and maybe you'll understand a little bit better. Maybe if you're looking for a church, you'll say, that's the kind of church I'm looking for in a world where um, you don't have anybody who stands for anything today. But that's, that's your choice. But you'll at least understand where we're coming from here. Verse 3 gives the picture of a young Christian being taught by a father figure. Solomon, in the story historically, talking to his own son, the things of God. He says, For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. Now what this passage shows you is this. It's the fact that the Word of God, the knowledge of God, which we want to get, the understanding of God, which you want to get, is simply found in, and here's the key, it's only found in the doctrine of the Bible. He says, I give you good doctrine. Now, if your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, and we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says that it is, then I want you to understand that when you begin to build that temple, you have to build that temple on Bible doctrine as a foundation. Now, the word doctrine means to teach, and that's the way you hear it most times. But it's more than that. It's not just simply to teach, but rather, uh, as it's laid out in the Bible, uh, not just to teach anything, but to teach a very specific teaching on a subject that is the right way to look at it. When we talk about Bible doctrine, and you hear me talking about it a lot, you're going to see it a lot in the Bible today. When you hear me talk about learning Bible doctrine, you're going to understand by the end of this how important it is because I'm talking about specific teachings that are given in the Word of God that are the correct and the right teachings on things that you and I need to know and you and I need to understand. 
And that's the importance of it. It's very important. And it's a thing where uh, it, it doesn't just mean to teach anything. In the Bible context, it means to teach specifically what the Bible teaches to tell us, to give us the understanding of God and the wisdom of God. Now, doctrine. The Bible is filled with hundreds of doctrines, thousands of doctrines, and uh, that are specific teachings in the Bible that forms for you and me the right mindset about things. And then, once you get, here's the process, once you get the right doctrine and you get it into your life and it forms the right thinking process, then you start to make the decisions in your life based on those doctrines. And Bible's filled with them. Uh, you have the doctrine of salvation. Now, that is a specific teaching on the right way to get saved. You know there's hundreds of ways that man will tell you to get saved today? Some guys will tell you you have to join their particular church to be saved. Some people will say you have to be baptized in water to be saved. Some people will say, well, when you get saved, you don't get completely saved. And a little bit later on, when you pray for uh, the God to give you the Holy Ghost, then you'll get all of God's Holy Ghost, and then you'll be completely saved. Some people teach you get saved by doing good works. There is a hundred ways out there that a man will tell you how to get saved. But in the Bible, there's one specific doctrinal teaching on salvation. And it's the way the Bible says a man has to get saved. See what I'm coming from? Now, you take the doctrine of salvation. I've given you this before on Thursday night. The doctrine of salvation is such a grandioso concept in the Bible and such a, uh, an immense uh, understanding of God's love and mercy. There's probably at least, I think I've given you 12, but there's probably more than that. There's 12 other doctrines that just simply go along with the doctrines of salvation. There's the doctrine of propitiation. There's the doctrine of regeneration. There's a doctrine of expiation. There's a doctrine of remission. See, those are all uh, doctrines in the Bible that will give you the absolute specific truth from God on the concept of salvation. There's the doctrine of eternal security. You know why people believe they can lose their salvation? Because they don't understand that doctrine. There's the doctrine of the rapture. There's the doctrine of the first coming of Christ. There's the doctrine on the second coming of Christ. When I use the word doctrine, I'm talking about there's a specific right biblical teaching in the Bible on that subject. So I want you to grasp that. There's the doctrine of justification, doctrine of baptism. <clears throat> we, we have a discipleship program around here. And that discipleship program uh, is, is built on 10 lessons. And you don't even think of it this way because, you know, we just do it because over the years... You say, well, there's hundreds of doctrines in the Bible. How am I going to ever learn that? Well, here's how it works. Over the years, over the months, when you start to do what many of you are doing and write down these things and learn the right things about things in the Bible, then you're learning doctrine. You hear me talk about the church and where do I go? I go to Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 13, the model church at Antioch being the model for us as a New Testament church. And when I, when I do that, then I, and you've heard me say it a hundred times, but when I do that, what I'm giving you is the doctrine of the New Testament local church. That's the Bible teaching on it. In our discipleship lessons, we have 10 lessons. And when you come through those 10 lessons, basically those 10 lessons are built on 10, at least 10 Bible doctrines. The first lesson is the doctrine of salvation. Second lesson is the doctrine of eternal security. 
We have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit of God. We have a lesson on the Bible. We have a lesson on God's will. We have a lesson on civil government. We have a lesson on baptism. Have a lesson on the Lord's Supper. Have a lesson on the church. Those are doctrines, specific right teachings from the Bible on those subjects. That's what doctrine is. Now, Paul and Timothy are a great model. Paul and Timothy are a great model (coughs) because it shows in a lot of ways what we do. Paul's job was to train young men. His whole life was devoted to taking young men and young women and training them in the scriptures. And, 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 and there's a great parallel between his life and, and my life because that's what God's called me to do. He does it a lot better than I do, but that's still my calling. My whole life has been filled with young men and young ladies who want to learn the Bible Moms and dads who come in, and some of you are in your 50s and your 60s now, but when we first hooked up, you were very young. Steve Brackeen, I think, is close to 60, isn't he? How old is he? That's close to 60, 52. 52. He's got a wife. She's 28. Got a wife. Got three kids. In fact, they go places, and, and people will say, oh, is this your grandfather? I mean, it's a, you know, he won't like to tell you that, but I'm telling you that, see? I first met Steve Brackeen when he was 14 years old. Jan Hill. Where are you at, Jan? How old are you? Never mind, Jan. Jan Hill is... Jan, Jan Hill is, is been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, she was telling me just the other day how that she was reading in the paper the day that Custer was slaughtered out there at the Little Bighorn, uh, you know, as a child. And, but when I first met Jan, she wasn't married to John. She was, what, 18, 19, 20 years old? That was a long time ago, see? John Hill's the same way. I, I mean, I remember, I remember, uh, um, uh, uh, um, I remember him, I just can't remember him. Uh, <laughs> Barb Christie and Phil Christie. I remember Barb when she was not married to Phil. Phil was an over-the-road truck driver. I, I mean, way back when. I still remember the day she came in my office years and years and years ago, weeping and crying and wanted to give her life to God and did, see? In other words, you, you, God puts people in your world like that and you grow and you get to the point where your job is to take them, to help them. And we're seeing now cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle of that. And uh, it's a thing where some of you have been around 10 years, some of you have been around 12 years, some of you have been around 5 years, some of you have been around 4 years, some of you have been 3 years, but you're all in the same boat. That's what the church is supposed to do. And Paul and Timothy are a great model of that. Paul did it for Timothy. You know why? Because Paul then wanted Timothy to go out and do it to somebody else, and he did. In fact, both First and Second Timothy major on Paul's emphasis to Timothy about keeping true and right doctrine. He goes over and over and over and over again with him. He warns him over and over and over again how not to get messed up on bad doctrine. It's just all through his books. And when Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, "...to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman which needeth not to be ashamed." He tells him to rightly divide the word of truth. You see? Now, that's what doctrine does. Doctrine divides. Doctrine divides what's right from what's wrong. 
And that's what it does. Doctrine never joins anything together. Doctrine divides. You see, this is the, prob- this is the number one problem that, that we have in our church. Not with the people in it, but as the church. And this is going to be the unending source of our, of our problems. We're a church who believes that the Bible doctrine lays out itself correctly. And we believe what the Bible says, that doctrine rightly divides. Now that sounds good and sounds nice, but here's the problem. We live in a world that wants to get everybody together. We live in a world where everybody, we live with churches today where everybody wants to get together. Everybody wants to be the same. And everybody wants to get away with the differences. And it's a thing where that'll never work for a Bible-believing church. It'll never work for a church who believes what Paul said. He said uh, all Scripture was given by inspiration and is profitable. But it's profitable for, number one, for doctrine. That shows you what's right. Then it's profitable, the second thing, for reproof. That shows you what's wrong. Then the third thing it's profitable for, he says, for correction. Now it'll show you not only what's right and what's wrong, it'll show you how to fix it. And then the fourth thing it's profitable for is instructions in righteousness. You see, that's what the Bible does. That's what doctrine does. Doctrine divides error from truth. And when you have error in your life and you get into the Bible, and you know you all, that's the way you got saved. When you and I got saved, we had error in our life. You know how you got saved? You either went to a church or you got, somebody got a hold of you or you witnessed somebody witnessed to you or you read a tract someplace. And what the Holy Spirit of God began to do is take the specific teachings of the Bible and divide it from where you're at in your life. And you knew you had to make a choice. That's just the way it is. You know, we look at all the problems that, that are out there and they're not really complicated. A lot of times people like them try to make them complicated. But at the end of the day, every problem in this world is simply one of two things. The world and the Christians today want to get everybody together. Bible doctrine will always separate everything out and only leave what is right. Now, I want you to notice that the number one thing that is profitable for above all else in the Bible, it was not salvation. No, I'm not, I'm not underplaying salvation, thank God for it, but I want you to understand that when God gave the Bible, the number one thing that it was profitable for was not salvation, it was doctrine, which is truth. Because I'll tell you, folks, without truth, you don't have any salvation. And there lies the problem. If this church was a car engine, then the spark plugs, that's what makes an engine run, would be the doctrines in the Bible. Without doctrine, you have absolutely nothing. And in Proverbs chapter 3, he now tells us that the key to our getting God's wisdom and understanding is simply the good doctrine that he gives us versus the bad doctrine that is out there that man wants to give us. Now, this is absolutely vital that you understand this because without it, without doctrine, the Bible will never make any sense to you. And you'll be blown away, as the Bible says in Ephesians 4.14, by every wind of doctrine. Doctrine is, as I said earlier, is the absolute fundamental key to making good choices in life. 
you make good choices in life based on the doctrine that tells you what's right versus what's wrong. Now, there's a great verse in, in 1 Timothy uh, that uh, is, again, Paul to Timothy. But I've always looked at it, as I've always laid out my, how I look at you, I've always looked at it as my responsibility to you. And I never tell you necessarily all why the things I, I, I have you do or I try to do with you. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Sometimes it just is not necessary. But, if there, but every, everything I do to try to get you in the Bible... Every encouragement I give you, everything I try to do one-on-one to help you is to get you to this place in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, that Paul wanted to get Timothy to. And he says in, 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 in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says this, these things command and teach. Now, that is a commandment to everybody for me to teach these things. And that's so I do. I take the commandments in the Bible real seriously. I think when Paul gives me a model and shows me to do something, hey, he obviously knew more about it than I did, or I do, so I follow his lead. I always look in back and see what, what works. A lot of preachers today, they want to try to reinvent the wheel. They think, well, everybody's just preached the Bible or did this and do that, so I'm going to come up with some new grandiose old plan that is going to really knock Christianity on its ear. No, it ain't going to knock it on its ear, but I will tell you, if the kids wouldn't hear, where it would knock you on. You can't reinvent the wheel. Nothing is better and clearer and cleaner than just preaching the Word of God. Nothing that man comes up with, no program, no circumstance, nothing that he does will ever take the place of just standing in the pulpit, opening up the wonderful words of life, and telling you Bible doctrine. That's the key. But we've lost that today. So he says in verse 11, These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And then he says in verse 13, and by the way, this is a great devotion. It's a great sermon, but it's a great devotion if you want to give a devotion at some point, one of your ball teams or something. Verse 13 simply says this, till I come. That's the rapture of the church. Give attendance. Keep doing this. Till I come, give attendance. And then he says, to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Now, those three things are what I try to, whatever I do in the Bible with you, whatever I teach, whatever I do, whatever I give you, it, in my mind, it comes back to that thing right there. And those are the three things that I want to try to get you to do. First of all, I want to get you to start reading the Word of God. Because when you read the Word of God, then you take it internally. And you can't let the Word of God get inside you without it changing you. You just simply can't. I say it all the time. The Bible is the only book in the world. When you start reading it, it starts reading you. And when you start reading, simply the reading of the Word of God, one chapter a day, two chapters a day, whatever you do, when you start, and some of you like those little daily bread, that's fine too, whatever works for you. But when you start reading the Word of God, you start taking it internally. You cannot take that perfect, precious book inside you internally and not have it affect you. So the first thing I try to get you to do is read it. I do that by encouraging you. I encourage you on Sunday morning, on Thursday night. I show you things in the Bible that you've never seen before, all for the express purpose of whetting your appetite so maybe you'll start to read it. 
The second thing he says is give attendance to reading and then to exhortation. The second thing I try to bring you up to the level to get to is to put it out. Exhortation is preaching. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have a pulpit and you have to have a church. But you put out what you've taken in. You exhortation is like exhaling. You take out what you took in. You took breath in and you put it out. You exhale. Exhortation is taking what God has given you in through the word of God by reading and then you put it out uh, and give it to others. And then the third thing is simply, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and there it is, to doctrine. You see, I just don't want you to read the book. <coughs> I'm not satisfied with you just being a good preacher of the book. No, what I really want you to do in combination of those first two is I want you to know the book. I don't want you just to believe some things about the Bible. I want you to know why you believe what you believe about the Bible. The thing that separates us from a cult is the fact that a cult will always tell you what to believe, a real Bible-believing church, and they're so close sometimes that people who are really stupid can't see the difference. The difference is a cult will tell you what to think, a Bible-believing church will make you think for yourself. Amen. And you'll get in that book, and you'll, you'll take what God has given you, and you'll understand the book. You'll know the book. And in time, you'll know why you believe what you believe. Hey, I love you to death, and I know you're all on different levels, but you'll never really be of any value to God till you really understand why you believe what you believe. Amen. And yet, I'm going to say that. I know that probably everybody in here knows something on a different level than others. You all know something. You can't tell me you haven't been here for three or four years or however long you've come and you haven't learned something. I don't believe that. You're all smarter than that. But I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Till I come, give attendance to reading the Word of God, to exhortation and doctrine. You've got to have doctrine in your life. And Solomon said, I give you good doctrine. And doctrine, good doctrine is the key to getting God's wisdom and understanding. Now, I said this all the time, and it's no secret that, that today the churches are in a mess. You know, you get up there late night before you go to bed, and on some of them weird channels, you know, you get a buy the video, Girls Gone Wild, you know, or something like that. And I'm certainly waiting for the moment. I'm going to order this one. Got to be one coming up, Churches Gone Wild. <laughs> because they have. Absolutely have. And I tell you all the time that churches today are just like the Book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a good yardstick to measure Christianity today. And the key to the book of Judges, which is the weirdest book in the Bible, much like Christianity, is back in chapter 21, 25, when the whole answer to the whole mess is simply that there's no king in Israel and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. That's Christianity today. When there's no doctrine in your life, when there's no doctrine in your church, then you are left to your own devices and we know where that will lead. It's just that simple. Now, I want to show you something, and I, I've never given you this before. Uh, but I want to show you the definitive verse on doctrine in the Bible. I think it's important for where we're trying to go here and what I want you to try to grasp. And immediately, because you're smart people, immediately you'll see where the problem lies today. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, better understand why this church takes the stand that it does. And again, I'm not making any apology for it. We will always take this stand because I understand how important doctrine is. Now, at the first coming of Christ, and I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 7 here. At the first coming of Christ, when Christ shows up, he faces some issues. 
he faces some issues with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. It was never the common, ordinary people who really had a problem with Jesus. It was always the religious hierarchy of his own faith that had a problem with him, much like you see today. And uh, what I'm going to show you is the real issue that Christ had, believe it or not, is the exact same issue that we have today. And you're going to see it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 through 29. I mean, it's an incredible thing. In Ephesians chapter 6, we we have a listing of the spiritual warfare of the believer. And the Christian is told to stand. Now, I don't know how how, how you can miss that. He didn't say it one time. In verses 10 through verses 14 of Ephesians chapter 6, he tells us four times that the job, before he ever gets into the armor, before he ever gets into the warfare, he simply tells us that the job for you and for me, for every Christian, and the job of every church is to stand. Now, it's just that simple. Now, I know you're all sitting here this morning, but the job of this church is to stand on the promises, not to be sitting on the premises. The job of this church is to take a stand. Now, the only question we got to ask ourselves is a stand for what? That's the question. And at the end of the day, you can judge a church by what it stands on. It's just that simple. And I, I mean, I, I, you know, this is not. This is like one of them big cartoons that your kids do, where you just connect the dots. Just follow the numbers and connect the dots. The picture will be very clear. Now, I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished. Now, it says astonished there. That's old English for astonished. That the people were astonished at his, what? Doctrine. For he taught them as one having, what? Authority. Not as the scribes. Now that's your definitive verse in the Bible on doctrine. Now there's your reason, no matter what a preacher tells you, or a pastor, or a Sunday school teacher, or anybody. This is the reason why we have to have doctrine. Right doctrine is absolutely vital importance to us. Right in that passage, he tells you, that the reason the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated Christ was because of his doctrine. Now, I got to tell you, they both have doctrine. And it goes similar along the same line based on the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. But the problem is, one doctrine was right and the other doctrine was wrong. Is that the problem? Uh Uh-uh. That may be true, but that's not the problem. You know what the real problem is? One guy with doctrine, his doctrine was the final authority. The other guy's doctrine had no authority. You want a final authority in your life? Get the right doctrine in your life. You hear me talk about all the time about the Word of God, the King James Bible, be the absolute perfect Word of God uh, for all things in faith and practice. You know why I believe that? It's the only Bible on the planet today that has the right doctrine. And the right doctrine is my final authority. And you showed in that verse right there, right in the middle of it, that the problem the scribes and the Pharisees had 
was that Christ's doctrine was his authority and the scribes had no authority for anything that they said. Now, it doesn't stop there. When you get over to Acts chapter 5, verse 28, when the apostles are there in Jerusalem, this is well before Acts chapter 7, you will find that they're being criticized because, guess what? They're filling Jerusalem with their doctrine. You get into Acts chapter 13, verse 12, and again, in the early church in Acts, it says, Then the deputy, when he saw uh, what was done, uh, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. You see, doctrine is the key to everything because it forms up your final authority. And today we have the exact same issue in Christianity and we have experienced the death of Bible doctrine. We see exactly the exact same thing in our churches and Christianity today. You see, the Christian world wants to get us all together. They'll call it interdenominationalism. They'll call it non-denominationalism. That simply means no specific teaching, no controversial teachings, nothing that will divide anybody, nothing that will make anybody bad or good, get rid of all the differences. Now, in the last 20 years, you've seen this happen with many, many Baptist churches. Many Baptist churches have come to the place that they take the word Baptist off their name. Now, the reason why they do that is because there's a certain set of doctrines. Now, I'm the first one to tell you, Baptists can be the goofiest people on the planet. I'm not suggesting for any stretch of the imagination, and this is one of their arguments, that there are so many goofy Baptists uh, in the Baptist circles that they don't want to be associated with them. Well, let me tell you how many goofy people are in a non-denominational theater of operations. (coughs) Wherever you go in life, there's goofy people. Did you ever marry a woman or marry a man and get into the family and somewhere on that family tree there wasn't a squirrel hanging out there on a limb? (laughs) Show me the place wherever you go, whoever you marry, wherever you get into, whatever club you join, whatever fitness center you go to, whatever this, whatever church, show me anything in this world that is in riff with goofy people. I fully understand it, Baptist. And I've come to the place where I always tell them when they ask me, uh, I say, are you a Baptist? And I say, I'm a Baptist with an explanation. I'd like to explain to you why I am. Then they'll ask me, are you a Southern Baptist? No. They'll say, are you a, a GRB Baptist? No. And they'll say, well, you must be an independent Baptist. And I say, no, I'm not an independent. They said, well, what kind of Baptist are you? I said, I'm a dependent Baptist. I'm dependent on that book for everything. I know the independent mindset, and that's exactly where it leads. You become independent of everything, including that book. And I'm telling you, they're goofy people. That's That's their reason, see? That's their reason. But the bottom line is that Baptist, goofy or not goofy, the Baptist mindset stands for a set of doctrines that down through the history of the world, since the inception with the Waldensians and the Albigensians and the, uh, the, the Anabaptists, it, it divided people. It divided people over truth. But they all say the same thing. We do it to reach more people. Old Bob Jones Sr. said one time, it's never right to do wrong to get the chance to do right. 
Now, I like to see people saved. I think that that's the job of ultimately the church is to win people to Christ and replicate itself. But I want you to know, the number one thing in this church is or never will be getting people saved. The number one thing in this church is and always shall be truth. Because if you don't have the truth to stand on, doctrine, then whatever else you've got really doesn't matter. And you'll wind in that same hokey mess that everybody else gets into today where you do it to reach more people. People don't like Baptists, so you can't reach them. Show me one time when Christ was on this earth. I'll just ask for one. And I'll give you $1,000 for every time you can find one. Show me one time where Christ ever backed off in any specific doctrine that he taught so somebody would get saved. You know what? When it comes to your salvation or anybody's salvation, it's the hard line up against that book. God is not going to say, well, don't worry about this. Just go ahead and get saved. You have to conform to God. God's not going to conform to you. You have to change your way of life to an absolute standard and authority. The authority's not going to change itself for you or for me. Come on. But when salvation becomes the prime focus with all the great doctrines of the Bible, they become secondary issues with absolutely no relevance. And they do that because nobody will get offended by their preaching. That's why they do it. And what we've seen today in the death of Bible doctrine is men and women, Christians, who once believed and understood what they believed about the Bible and had a final authority, has moved into the arena of the scribes and the Pharisees who have no final authority. And to do that, you have to leave. I'm going to say it again. You have to leave your doctrinal roots. Like it or not like it, without any apology, this church will never leave its doctrinal roots. We know what, where our bread is buttered, and we know what is the best thing for us, and it's a book that's much more perfect than anybody in this room, including me. That has to be our final authority. Now, the devil's move is and always was to get any doctrine that would divide anybody out who didn't accept the truth. In the Bible, it's called leaven. And you'll find when you go back and study the Old Testament that there was a certain bread that they had to bake uh, that the priest had to eat called the showbread. And it's a picture of the Word of God. And the instructions for, for, for making that bread are given better than Betty Crocker ever laid anything out. And it clearly says that when you make that bread that is a picture of the Word of God called the showbread, it's not to have any leaven in it. Because leaven in the Bible is a picture of a mixture of the things in the world. And the Bible says in the first Corinthians that a little leaven leaven the whole lump. Leaven in the Bible represents bad doctrine. You let one bad doctrine come in, it's like raising rabbits. You got two, you got four. You got four, you got eight. You got eight, you got 12. And I'm telling you, bad doctrine creeping in is exactly what it does. Now let me show you something else. All the new Bibles. Somebody says, why do you stay with the King James Bible? Because it's the only book that has stays true to the doctrine. In the New Testament alone, in the New Testament alone, there's 45 times that the Holy Spirit of God used the word doctrine. You go pick any new translation you want. I don't care where you're going to get it. Go get any one you want, and you'll find that out of that 45 times, 39 times they took the word doctrine out. They don't want you to have doctrine. The goal of the Laodicean church is to get rid of doctrine. 
I gave you a verse, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And every new Bible on the market, rightly dividing the word of truth, is gone. They call it correctly handling it. Well, that's nice. Now, if you haven't figured this out already, let me clue you in here. I get a lot of criticism for some of the things I say. I understand. I get it. I get it. Don't ever feel sorry for me. I'm a big boy. And I totally understand when you shoot your mouth off and say the things that I say, you're going to get it. I get it. I understand it. I got it. But I want you to know something. In my particular case, God has equipped me for this battle. I love the movie Billy Jack. He died a couple weeks ago. Broke my heart. Didn't eat for a day. But my favorite movie about Billy Jack, you know, you know who Billy Jack was? He was that goofy guy, he was real quiet, and he was an ex-Green Beret or whatever guy. He wore that goofy-looking hat, and he'd always show up when people needed anything. He was a martial arts expert. And he's standing there in the park one time, and there's three guys who are bullying everybody. He was always there to take care of the boys. I love a guy like that. And I'll never forget, he's standing there, and this, this, this redneck is just, it, he's just giving him all kinds of grief. And Billy Jack's just standing there smiling at him. Then the guy finally says, what are you smiling about? Billy Jack says, because in a minute I'm going to kick your side of your head in, and there ain't a thing you're going to do about it. And then he did. Now, I don't know a lot of things in life. But let me tell you something. I am equipped for this battle. You can, you can crack on me all you want. I don't care. Sticks and stone may break my bone, but words will never hurt me. That's in the Bible. You can crack on me all you want. You say whatever you want to say. I'm fair game. I understand that. You can't stand up here and say the things I say and put it out there on a website and, and not, not get clobbered for it. I totally get it. I totally get it. But I want to tell you something. You can crack on me all this time and I'll just let it fly. <clears throat> you attack this book and you and I are going to war. You see this book right here? Now, I can't speak for you, but this book parachuted out of heaven down in landed in my backyard about 30, 40 years ago. I can't speak for you, but when God wrote this book, he wrote it and put my name in it and gave it to me. This book saved my soul. Amen. This book made my family love God and serve God in the, in, in the Word of God. This, this, this book's given me everything that I could ever want in life. This book has protected me and given me, and God gave it to me, and it's been the absolute standard of my life, and I believe it is the absolute internal, infallible Word of God. I mean, from cover to cover, including the cover. And you can mess with me all you want. You start to take a crack on God's book, and brother, I only have one rule in my warfare. No quarter asked, no quarter given. This is God's book. And I know I don't need to defend it. I just like to. I like kicking the side of your head in with the Bible and you can't do anything about it. Now I have one of the areas that I get rightly justifiedly criticized for. You're speaking out against churches, denominations, or even preachers. And I don't, and I don't, I don't think of myself as being 
smart in any great way? I mean, I, I was in the fourth grade so long, the kids brought me to the apple. They thought I was the teacher. See? I'm no great intellectual genius. I just believe that God wrote a book, and it's a final authority, and he gave it to me. And if you bring your, if you bring your, 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 your diamonds over or your, your money over and say, Bob, guard this with your life, you know, and I'll be back in three weeks, I'd guard it with my life. But God gave me something much more precious to guard than something anybody on earth could ever give me. He gave me this book right here. And he left it in my care and my keeping. And I'll tell you what, you know what? Pick on me all you want. You pick on that book, and we'll go to war. I mean, uh, I, 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 again, I don't, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. It's just when you get into dealing with people who have no doctrine, they're the dumbest people in the world. You know what my favorite saying is in life? And I live by this. In the land of the blind, a one-eyed man is king. That's a true statement. In the land of the blind, a one-eyed man is king. People say, well, he's so negative. I'm the, I'm the most positive person you've ever found in your life. You know why? Because I am positive. I got a final authority right here in my hand. That's positive. I ain't negative. See, I got a final authority. I got a tough job. I know that. I got a nasty job, but somebody's got to do it. I watch, the TV, I watch the TV shows on television, you know, the dirtiest jobs on the planet. Hey, the dirtiest job on the planet is being a Philadelphian preacher in a latency in church age. Any day of the week. I'll get out there on those oceans and get them crabbed by the little crabbies and do whatever I got to do with them. Now look at this. Now look at this and tell me what you think I should do. Here's my dilemma. I got to face you every Sunday. Here's my dilemma. I'd love to be a wuss like most Christians. I would. And anything I'm saying here, I'm really not talking about any of you because you all love the book. I believe that with all my heart. And on whatever level you're on, you'll take your stand. I believe that. I believe that. But let's face it. Christianity is, is just a bunch of wusses out there. You shake the average pastor's hand, you think you just picked up a dead fish. I want to tell you something. Now, here's my dilemma. I mean, I'd love to be a wuss just like everybody else, but I got to face myself in that book every day. Now, you tell me what I do with this. Here's my dilemma. Here's what I'm faced with. Maybe you don't, not you, maybe you don't listen to this. You don't read the Bible, but unfortunately, I started a long time ago, and now I'm stuck. You got addicted to your drugs. I got addicted to mine. I don't know what to tell you. 1 Timothy 4.16. Pick it up in 15. He says, meditate upon these things. Talking to Timothy now, Paul to Timothy. His preacher guy, like he's talking to me, meditate on these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Now, here it comes. Take heed unto thyself. That's always good advice. And under the, here it comes, the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now, what am I supposed to do with that? Now, you see that? I mean, I've known God people over the years, down through my life, I've known God people that could ever take a stand for anything in the Bible that ever cost them something. They play it safe all their life. Last week, we talked about the waiters of Christianity. They get in the water, the Spirit of God, to the ankles, to the knees, but they don't go any farther. Now, that verse tells me as a pastor, forget it as a pastor, that verse tells me as a Christian, the one I'm to take heed unto myself and to continue in that good doctrine... And in doing so, one, I'll save myself. Now, that's not salvation. 
Saved is used differently in the Bible sometimes. That's not saved as getting saved as we know getting saved and trusting Christ as your own Savior. This is something else. He says that, 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 that in that good doctrine and doing so, I'll save myself and then I'll save others, you, from getting what? Deceived with bad doctrine. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're asleep at home in your bed at night and I just happen to be driving by there, you know, and, and driving out and I see some guy out there with a Molotov cocktail and he throws it up against your house and your house bursts into flames and I recognize the guy, I get his license plate and, I, and the first thing I do is beat on your door and get you out and then I start coming over there and the police show up, the fire show up and I start to say, hey, I saw him, I saw him, I got his license plate, I know the guy who tried to kill you. I'd be your hero. You'd love me. You'd buy me dinner. But I can stand up here and say, you better watch out for this bad teaching and this bad teaching and this bad doctrine or what this guy's putting out because it's going to kill you. Why am I not your hero? Don't answer that just yet. I got another question I want to ask you. Now, this is total participation. If you're a visitor here, you can't really answer this question. Maybe you can just by being the last 40 minutes you've been here. Let me ask you a question. You like what you get here? Well, the two of you. You like what you get here? I mean, Sunday morning, Thursday night, people ministry, New Year's, all the special Bible things we do. I mean, come on. Well, gee, let me ask you a sobering thought. Who do you think over the last 150 years of time paid the price so, one, I could have it, two, I could give it to you. You think it just happened? You see, it's so easy in churches to come, any church, here, anywhere you go, take what you like and then complain about the rest. Nitpick it apart. You see, I take the stand that I take willingly. And I will pay the price that I pay, as many of you will, willingly. I do it for me first, and then as the Bible says, I do it for you. And the next generation that that verse, verse 15, gets fulfilled in your life, that thy profiting may appear to all. It's for your good. In America, we have a fast-moving socialization of the United States of America, if you ain't figured that out yet. We are headed down a socialistic, communistic road. We're headed down a road of entitlements. And entitlements gives the idea that everything is free. You want to get a free cell phone? Get an Obama cell phone. When he put out his Obamacare, it was like your rates are going to be so much cheaper. You're going to, your rates for your health care is going to be as cheap as your phone bill every month. You obviously never saw my kid's phone bill every month when you, they were growing up. But anyway, you, you, it's going to work out wonderful. It's going to be free. And when you can't pay it, we're going to help. We're going to have, we're going to have, we're going to have entitlements that you can get money to get it. And everybody gets the idea, oh man, it's free. It's free. I had a gal one time that had, I don't know how many kids she had, and, and she come to a place where every time she had one, she, she, she didn't have any, she just went off to one of those hospitals that has it, and, and she came out and she said to one of our gals, she says, oh man, free health care is great. My girl looked at her and said, free health care is great? There is no free health care. There ain't nothing free in this planet. Somebody always pays the tab. 
even if it isn't you. And having right doctrine, having good doctrine, to have in your lap, to have everything you got, to, to come in and nitpick, and I like this, I don't like that, and know the charts on the ground, why isn't it up there? Why isn't it got more colors in than that? And what is that stupid thing doing up there? And what does all that mean over here? Hey, somebody paid the tab and the price for you to have the good doctrine you have. Amen. It's just that simple. The death of Bible doctrine. You see, when you have a final authority, and that's the doctrine you follow, it simply will divide out those who do not want a king in their life, as in the book of Judges, the final authority. And come on, the Bible already told us in, in 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, for the time will come when they shall not endure sound doctrine. We know that. Now, it's just, it's just that simple. Now, I have, I have no problem telling you who's not teaching or teaching bad doctrine. And I know, I mean, that's just the way it is. You know what Paul said? Paul said in Romans 16, 17, mark those that cause division among you. Now, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believe unto him should not perish but have everlasting right. You believe that? Yes. You like that verse? Yes. That verse is a good verse, isn't it? Nice little verse. True verse, isn't it? But you know what you've forgotten? Romans 16, 17 is just as true. And where John 3, 16 says that for God so loved the world and he did, Romans 16, 17 says, mark those that cause division. Now, why can you accept the one and not the other? I'll tell you why. Because God's people, and again, I'm not talking to you as individuals here. I'm just talking in the sense of God's people in general. Why is it that you can love certain things in the Bible, but other things that are maybe controversial? You always want to play it safe. And we'll always leave somebody else to pick up the tab for good doctrine. But enjoy it when you get it. Oh, I'm telling you, man. Some of God's people I've met in life have never stood for God in public for anything. Ever. Now, I understand how important doctrine is. I understand what Solomon is saying in chapter 4 when he says, I give you good doctrine. And I also understand that people, pastor churches, want to take it from you. And I and I'm and I so what I'm supposed to do? I'm, would you would you you like it that I'm just supposed to stand by and let that happen? Let me ask you another question. Say you're out at the mall someplace, and I just happen to be at the mall there too. And um, I see you over there, but you're busy over there. You're eating at that food court, you know. And uh, you're, you're down there with your kids, you know, and everybody. And they're having fun. they got the little playground thing over here. And, and you're out there, you know, and you're distracted. And I'm standing over here just kind of enjoying you with your kids and looking around out there, you know. And all of a sudden, I see this man come up. And your, 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 your little girl over here is doing something. You go over I see this man come up, and he grabs one of your kids. Clamps his hand over his mouth so he can't scream. And... With everybody busy around, he kind of humpers over and kind of walks him out like it's his own kid and down the line. The kid's quick and just like any kid who's throwing a temper tantrum. You see that a lot today. Now, if I just stood by and watched him steal your kid, and later after you got the police there, I come down and I said, yeah, I saw the whole thing. I was, wasn't finished with my coke yet. 
you'd be terribly upset with me, wouldn't you? Would you not want me to step in and, and keep somebody from stealing your child if I had the ability to do that? That's a question I would like for you to say yes or no to. Yes, then why do you get upset when some man tries to steal your crown? And I try to stop it. I mean, Revelation 3.11 says, Take heed that no man take thy crown. And just as I wouldn't stand by and let somebody take your child, I will not stand by and let somebody get up there and preach bad doctrine that will rob you from your crown. You may go ahead and let them rob you, but it won't because I stayed silent on it. That's my job. Dirtiest job in America. We here in this church will always operate with the Bible as our final authority. Doctrine will always be the number one aspect that we hold to. And we'll make no apology for it. I told you already that the time will come that the, they will not insert down doctrine. One of the major shifts in Bible Christianity, uh, and next week I'm going to show you the whole process. Next week I'm going to take you all the way back 200 years and show you how we got in the mess that we're in so you completely understand what he's talking about and how important doctrine is. But well, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 3, verse 3 uh, shows us, uh, we're not enduring sound doctrine, shows us that the major movement that goes along with no doctrine is simply the replacing of the preaching of the Word of God with teaching of the Word of God. He says, For their time shall come when they shall not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers. Now, I totally understand that teaching is important. You want to talk about a church balance, the balance is between teaching and preaching and the blend of the two. Teaching has a purpose and preaching has a purpose. And the blending of the two are the key to a successful balance in a church. But you say, well, what's the difference? Well, when you get rid of doctrine, then there's no more preaching and the teaching is also worthless. Teaching today, in most churches, non-offensive. Teaching is there to please you. Teaching is there to pacify you. Teaching you there to make you feel good about yourself. Teaching there is to lift you up, to fill you up, to edify you. And I'm not saying that's not important. But you don't ever want to get edified and lifted up unless somebody's just tearing the hide off of you in the process. And that's what preaching does. You don't ever want to be taught how good you are with somebody out preaching and bouncing it out how rotten you are. And if you can't get that, you're beyond help. I don't want to tell you. You saw I've seen kids that have grown up with their parents modeled them and, and gave them everything that they wanted. How about that kid that just killed somebody a couple of months ago? And when he went before the judge, you know the defense his lawyer made? It was one of affluence, chronic affluence. What is that? Well, Your Honor, his kids, his mom and dad gave him everything he wanted all of his life and never held back anything and was all positive and all good. And he had now in his life at 22 years old, he has, does not know the difference of responsibility and accountability because he's had the affluence of everything all of his life in a positive way and now he's not responsible for this. Anybody here agree with that analogy? Well, it got him off. That's the world we live in. Killed one or two people. Smirking and laughing about it as he goes out of the courtroom. But that's the world we live in. And you see the market of Philadelphian church. I mean, there was a time before most of you were born that good, solid preaching was the cornerstone of any ministry. And you don't know that because you've come along later. 
But the market of Philadelphia age was great preachers, not great teachers. And I'm not saying that teaching isn't important, but the market of Laodicean church is teachers and no great preachers because there's no doctrine. Where are the Sam Joneses, the Billy Sundays, the Bob Jones Seniors, the Dwight Talmages, the Mordecai Ham, the Gypsy Smith? Where are the D.L. Moody's, the Lester Roloffs, the Phil Wards, the Tommy Thomases, the Namel Sabakas? The hallmark of church today is teaching that has no doctrine and is not offensive. Because we've taken everything out. And now we don't have any denomination. We're not Baptists. We're not this. We're just a big gray mush. We can all get together. Now you hear me say it many times. And I'm not saying it just to say it. I truly mean it. There are some of you in here, many of you in here, male and female, that I'd put up against any pastor in this city. When it comes down to sitting down and discussing that book and laying that book out and rightly dividing it, I wouldn't worry about you for two seconds. You know why? Because you have doctrine and you got good doctrine. You know how to rightly divide the word of truth. Now this is why that churches today have to put on a Las Vegas show for a Sunday morning service or a Sunday evening service. You see, when you don't have the Bible doctrine to feed their spirit, then you're going to have to come up with a performance to feed their flesh to keep them coming and call it a church. My job is to save myself from bad doctrine and to save you from it if it's possible. The primary job of any church is to preserve and put out the truth in the form of Bible doctrine. You show what's right, and then you show what's wrong, and if it happens to spill over and get a church named or a pastor exposed, praise the Lord. I don't know what to tell you. Look at Romans chapter 6. No, now it's going to get really nasty. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. You see, in salvation, there was one specific doctrine that you got saved by. Not a hundred, not twenty. You got saved by a doctrine that was held to and somebody paid the price for for the last 1,600 years in blood. Versus an organization that wanted to kill anybody that believed the way that you're sitting here believed today. They didn't have air conditioning buildings. They didn't have nice Bibles. They didn't have comfortable chairs. They met wherever they could meet without getting killed by the opposition. Simply so that you could have what you have today. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things that I've committed to you, unto you, the same you commit to faithful men. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. Just you and I were saved, born again by a specific doctrine, a doctrine of salvation, not just any way to be saved, but he says a form of salvation that was delivered to somebody and handed down through the years. Let me tell you something. Somebody paid the delivery price for you and me to have the gospel. In building people, the job of the pastor and the church is to protect that doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.3, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Oh, someone's not getting along and playing well with others. They're teaching a wrong doctrine. And he says, charge them. Call them out on it. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. 
knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for man-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other that is thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. There it is again. Now, aren't you glad? I know I am, and I know I can't speak for you, but aren't you glad that somebody was willing to pay the price down through history that you and I could have that sound doctrine today? Do you understand that it just didn't come? You didn't buy it off the shelf at the grocery store like you do a can of beans? Somebody actually paid the tab to deliver the doctrine that you hold in your hand today. Where would we be? If somebody down through history didn't speak out. Where would we be today if somebody took the path of least resistance just like so many of God's people do? Where would we be? What would we have or what would we not have if somebody back then wasn't willing to stand up and say, That's not right. I'm going to stick with the book. And pay the price to deliver doctrine to us. Yet what about the next three or four generations that Jesus doesn't come? Yet who will be the keeper of the flame that others down the line after us get delivered unto them what somebody was so willing to pay the price to deliver to you and me? First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. A double honor. Now look at that. A double honor for staying with the word and laboring in doctrine. You won't find 10 preachers in this city who know what that double honor is. And it's the only place you find it in the Bible. And it's connected with doctrine. Now in First and Second Timothy and in Titus, you find Paul prepared his young men uh, to pastor. I told you that already. Uh, along with Philemon, they're called the pastoral epistles. They're about preparing young men to preach. Out of 45 places in the New Testament that talk about doctrine, 14 of them are found in those three books, First and Second Timothy and Titus. You know why? That's how important doctrine is. Now, the job of the pastor in the church is to protect that. And, there, uh, and, 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 and those things, and, and pass it on and, and pay the tab that somebody else can have it. And when you start to build a church the right way, and you build it on doctrine... You know what God always does? God will raise up the men and the women who will become the strong lions of that church, who will take a stand and be willing to pay the price. That's our job. Taking you young Christians, you lambs, and turning you into lions. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as thou hast been taught. Somebody gave it to me and paid the price. I gave it to you, and I'll pay the price. Will anybody else here today carry it on and be willing to pay the price? Will you? He says, as he hath been taught, that he may be able, by what? Sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. You know what a gainsayer is? A gainsayer is somebody who gains things in life by what they say. They'll gain advantage over you. They'll gain advantage in some situation by what they say. He says, you convince them. You take them on. Look at verse 10. Don't like controversy, do you? Hate confrontation, do you? 
I mean, a friend, uh, afraid to fight the good fight, are you? I mean, man pleaser all the time, are you? Afraid to speak up and take a stand, are you? Follow the uh, path of least resistance. Play it safe all the time. Oh, don't be negative in your approach. That's your, that's your mindset. My, my, do you have an issue there? Let me tell you something. Look at verse 10. Pick it up at verse 9 again. Titus chapter 1. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, and he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, here we go. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. That's money. One of them, even a prophet of their own, the, the Cretans, are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bugs. Well, I guess Paul kind of didn't have the sweet spirit of Christ there, did he, when he wrote that? <laughs> kind of having a bad day, is he? Well, I'm offended. I must tell you I'm offended at that. I never read that before in my life. I am offended. Look at verse 11. How dare Paul tell somebody to shut up? Well, I tell you, I just, I just beyond me. I can't believe that. I mean, I'll never go to his church. He's negative. He's telling these people to shut up. Look at verse 10. He's calling these people deceivers. Well, they're good folks. I worked down at the, I worked down at the drugstore at one of them. They're good folks. Who does he think he is calling them deceivers? How ungodly that is. How unchristian that is. Why, he says, look, subvert whole homes. Why, they're just trying to do good? They're just trying to help out here? How dare he say that? I mean, teaching things that are wrong. Well, who does he think he is? Does he think he has the corner on the Bible? He knows everything there is about the Bible? How unchristian that is. And then, my God, look what happens next. Now he names names. He says the Cretans. Now he limited to a group. Then he says they're liars. Evil beasts. Slow bellies. I don't know what a slow belly is. I don't think it's a good thing. <laughs> I've never talked that way. I must confess right at this particular moment in time, I'm getting convicted by my own preaching. Up compared to Paul, I'm a liberal. I may get over there in 2 Timothy 4.10 one time and he says, For Demas hath forsaken me, love the present world. Woo, that's rough, man. You see, when you shoot your mouth off about what you don't like, when somebody takes a stand for the truth against that, that don't take a stand for the truth, when you open a Bible, you look like the king of fools, man. I don't know what to tell you. And brother, I'll tell you what, I've said it many, many times, God will always give you the church that you deserve. That is a dying truth. Now, the death of Bible doctrine, taking a stand on sound doctrine. Now, next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you the whole process. I'm going to walk you through from the whole concept of how it started, where it came up through, how we got to this thing, because there are messages that you need to hear, and there are messages that you better hear. Because the thing that will, and I'm not worried about the church. Church is, finally, is firmly ingrained on doctrine. But you've got to get to the place in your life where you understand that there are some things in this life you better be willing to take a stand on. And you better not be too timid about it when it happens. I was coming over today. And I was driving over here. I was listening to the Fox News Channel. They always have the medical thing on there. And I wasn't trying to listen to that, but I, it was on there. And they were talking about pancreatic cancer and how deadly that is. How that there's 
He says, you know that most people die with it because they don't find it quick enough, but the problem is even when you find it quick enough, it's in such a hard spot, your pancreas, to do any surgery on that it's almost impossible to, to cure it. And I think it's the number three or second killer of people in, on, in all the world. And I, I was driving over here and I was listening to that, and he says, you know what? He says, it's such a, it's like prostate cancer. I said it's worse. He says, because it's such a, a slow thing. He says, you can have patriotic cancer going on in you for five, six, seven years. And there's no test that we can give you. I mean, if you get prostate cancer, they can test your PSA or they can, you know, test your blood levels and all that stuff. But he says, we don't really have a good test for, for cancer in the pancreas. And he says, the problem is you, you don't know you have it. And then when you know you have it, you start to turn yellow. And he says, when you start to turn yellow, it's too late, and there's nothing we can do. And I was coming over driving, I thought to myself, man, if that isn't an illustration of where Christianity has gone. See, we're not going to turn around Christianity. My goal in preaching this message today is certainly not, hopefully, that some right person will hear it on the website, or some person here will pass out the tape, or even somebody here will go out and take it and change. It ain't going to happen. That's not my goal. My goal will always be as it is right now. My goal is simply to save myself first from bad doctrine and then help you save yourself from it. We ain't going to change around America. As I was driving over here listening to that illustration, I thought to myself, boy, if that isn't just the way it is in Christianity. Because I'm going to show you next week how that this bad doctrine, this lack of doctrine, this non-denominationalism, this, this stuff that takes all the stuff that divides how it comes through a very slow process, just like that cancer. And everybody thought everything was going fine, and everybody thought everything was happy, just like the guy with cancer. But suddenly, everybody knew something was wrong, who was paying attention, because the guy suddenly turned yellow. And when he turned yellow... Everybody said, you need to go to the doctor. He went to the doctor, and the doctor found out he had cancer in his pancreas, and because it had went so long and was undetectable, nobody thought anything about it. Everything felt fine. Everything looked fine, but deep down inside, something was going on, and it was too late once he turned yellow. Christianity today will never go back. You know why? Because that erosion of Bible doctrine has been going on so long. Christianity now has turned yellow. They're cowards. They got a yellow streak down their back a mile wide. And once they get to that point where they can't ever go back and the damage has been done, it's the death of Bible doctrine. It's the death of Christianity. Christianity came to the point for so many years where underneath the surface, everybody was happy. Everybody thought it was wonderful. And just one little thing here wasn't one major thing that you could put your finger on. It was just a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here. Well, let's get rid of this and let's get rid of that. And let's don't do this because they want to win people to Christ. Yeah, that's a great idea. Generation after generation after generation fell into that trap. And as they got all together, the Bible got farther apart. And doctrine became a non-essential. And now one day Christianity woke up and I see it today and it's yellow. It's a coward. Christianity couldn't take a stand on this book today if their life depended on it. 
They're cowards. They're afraid to make somebody else mad. They're afraid they might lose a friend. They're afraid that they might lose a family member. They're afraid that this might happen or people may speak evil of them or this, that. And yet the same people that 200, 400, 500, 600 years ago who paid the incredible price that you and I could have what we have today. And now we're not willing to take it on to the next level. You see, that's all this church is ever going to be. It's all I ever want it to be. I don't expect it to get to be 5,000 people, 2,000 people, 1,000 people. I don't expect those things. All I expected in these last days as the darkness rolls in and the death of Bible doctrine and Christianity and the cowards and the, and the yellow jaunice that fits in it all just destroys everything. All I care about is a light in the darkness. I don't want to be the main chandelier in the ballroom of Christianity. I just want to be the light bulb on the back porch in Kansas City where people can still come and get the truth, where I can put them with people who will help them understand the truth, that we will pay the price, that we can give out to others what somebody paid the price that we have today, that we don't just look at all that we have and all the great things we do in the Bible, and we look at all those things that we just take it for granted that it was always been around. Well, much worse, take it for granted that it'll always be around. It's always been around because someone was willing to pay the price, and it'll only be around in the future if God's people today are willing to pay the price to keep it around. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for 